And she's like, he's not getting to see a final cut of my film. Fuck you. You know, you get to fuck me, but you do not get to see the final cut of my movie. Hi, I'm Lainey. I'm the editor of LaineyGossip.com and an entertainment reporter in Canada. And I am Team Lewis Hamilton. I'm Duanna Taha. I am a TV writer and producer, and I'm experienced enough at doing this podcast that I know that's some sort of uh, dig I'm supposed to get, but uh, it's kind of <laughs> gone over my head. That's okay, because we have a lot to talk about this week. Yes, including, well, the only thing we're talking about this week is the oral history of Madonna's Truth or Dare, a Vulture's amazing piece. We get deep into the work of why this documentary has stood the test of time. It created a cult around Madonna that uh, we as young people and possibly we as Torontonians were super primed to join uh, and what that looks like 30 years later. This is Show Your Work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I recommended a sports documentary to you. It was, I think, The Last Dance, Michael Jordan. All right, that probably tracks, sure. Which is about a year ago now. Yeah. Probably exactly, actually. I'm Um, having recovered memories of uh, crunching in my closet, which is where we were recording podcasts back when we thought this was temporary. Yeah. Now, this time I'm not going to recommend it. I'm just going to tell you about this Netflix docu-series on Formula One racing, which I'm looking at your face now. Same. I did not, like, I don't care about motorsports. I still don't think I care about motorsports, except that this series is called Drive to Survive about Formula One racing is so much more like on a TV on a TV docu-series standard, the access that they're given, so you as a TV producer, would not fucking believe what kind of access this docu-series the filmmakers have. I mean, they're embedded in with the F1 teams. And they're getting, like, all the, like, all the intimate details, like the workings of it. Anyway, it it turns out I read about it on The Ringer. So I was like, let me just check this series out. Yes, and I started watching it. We got so obsessed because it's like the show your work, the ultimate show your work sports documentary. Better than all like all other sports documentaries that I have seen when it comes to like understanding the mechanics, haha, the mechanics of how this sport works as in not just the drivers, but the teams, what everybody's job is, contract negotiations. Um, you know, F1 or all motorsports, as I'm learning now, is, is not just about putting the dude in the car. There's so much strategy. It's like 
when you change the tires. It's a whole team effort. So they're on headset. The dude's driving at like whatever, 300 miles an hour. You can't believe how fast it is. And he's able to carry on a conversation as in like, and calmly like, so yeah, when should I change the tires? Uh, okay, well, I see that this level in the car is uh, doing some shit. Like in that voice, in that voice, Duanna, it's so fast. Like we're, think about how fast these cars are going and they're just carrying on conversations about work. Like, technical, very precise conversations. In that respect, I think you'd be into it. I, I'm not going to recommend it, but I'm just saying this is the ultimate show your work documentary for a sports documentary. I mean, I can see this because it seems as though if you are involved in that, it's like uh, people are somewhat amazed when they hear about, you know, uh, quick changes in like probably in television, uh, live TV and stuff, but I'm actually thinking about ballet, weirdly, where you become essentially a marionette, right? And people dress you and undress you if you have to make a quick change and there's no like shyness or whatever because you got to do it for the sake of the show, right? And that sounds like the yeah. same thing here in terms of like you, the driver, are uh, not a puppet, but like you are one uh, element of the whole production, right? So I I can see this and I can buy that this would be the case. Uh, I also really like this vibe of, I'm not going to recommend it because you're just going to poo-poo it. Uh, I'm just going to <laughs> nod in its direction. And, you know, when we started talking and you said, oh, I have something to tell you. I thought about and rejected something, but now that you've brought this up, I have a counter reference to make. I'm not going to recommend it, but uh, I'm just going to mm. say it's out there. Um, I saw and retweeted uh, a tweet from Barry Jenkins uh, this mm. weekend uh, about the glory of uh, a, an, a children's animated series called The Backyardigans. Uh, mm -hmm. And yeah. I don't know if you have... Here's the thing about The Backyardigans. Every episode has several songs, which any adult who has seen them will tell you are catchy as fuck. Um, the characters yeah. regularly dance. And so in order to get the dancing, do you know what they did? They had actual dancers from Alvin Ailey dance these choreographed dances and they motion captured them and then like transmutated them onto the characters uh, notably Alicia Keys sings uh, a real memorable episode. Half the people who are listening now are like, Boinga! So yes, it's Boinga. Um, <laughs> and Barry Jenkins, as far as I know, is not embarking on a preschool project uh, or anything of the kind. So he just discovered this for his own uh, discovery and is clearly delighted. And so I, I'm also going to nod in the direction of, not saying you have to watch it, I'm just saying Barry Jenkins was impressed, so why wouldn't you be? Where does one find Backyard? Uh, that's a really good question. It might be streaming. I'm sure it's streaming somewhere, Netflix or similar. It's one of those uh, shows that seems to come and go on various platforms according to who buys what. It was Nickelodeon, so I don't know who owns old Nickelodeon properties at this point, like whether that's a, but he also said it, it's okay. amazing what you find on this app. You know, the way people are incredulous about Twitter 
fairly often. Yeah. So maybe somebody put up a clip and he went digging. I have no idea, but he's he bought the first whole season and is deep in it now. <laughs> yeah, Maria mentioned it on celebrity social media. Um, and she has the same things to say about Backyardigans as you do, like the music, the everything, the characters. Um, she was like, uh, like Peppa Pig and all the other ones have nothing on Backyard. Yeah, I'm not saying this as a, you know, as toddler shows go, it's amazing. I'm just like, no, it's it's kind of a legit amazing show. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's delightful and tongue and cheeky and great. So, uh, you know, if you're bored or need to pick me up, Barry Jenkins endorses it. So why shouldn't you, what is actually the name of the documentary again, that you're, that you're promoting drive to survive. There are three seasons, 10 episodes, each season, each episode is between 30 and 35 minutes, highly digestible. Okay. All right. And Apparently there's a little cult. Like ever since I started watching it, like if I'll if I say something, any so, whoever is in the Drive to Survive cult will be able to pick up on it and be like Drive to Survive and then all of a sudden it's a thing. Right, 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 right. Okay. Uh well, so I if we were a different kind of podcast, we'd make teams, we'd have people fight it out um because they seem both equally unlikely uh in the Venn diagram of our listenership. Um, so we should, that actually is a thing. Like I'm thinking about writing a post about like, which, like what it says about you, depending on what F1 team you support. Okay. So first you have to choose one. Because there are 10 of them. Okay. Amazing. Like I already know which team you would choose. Sure. Sure you do. The last place team. Sure you do. Um, yeah. So it would be like, probably BuzzFeed is going to be on this in about five minutes. Like what your F1 favorite team says about you, because I think drive to survive is it's listen, I think it's steadily, it seems to be gaining some kind of momentum. It's also funny to me that you're like, oh, we saw this and we watched it. It has definitely not been served to me at my house, uh, you know, which tells you about our collective algorithms. It's not served on my algorithm. It's Yasik's algorithm. Right. Of course. That, yes, so. that tracks. All right. One of the best things on the internet last week, Vulture's oral history of Madonna's truth or dare. Um, Which I think, yeah. Right? Like, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in all the work of the work of the work, there are now, because it's this week, I guess, is the 30th anniversary, Right. But uh, of course, just when we're talking about work, this is not about Vulture, but Vulture got the jump, not just by being the best, but by being the first, right? When you sent the article, Mm -hmm. the oral history, uh, almost a week ago, last Friday, that was the first sort of, you know, wake up consciousness that I had of, oh my God, it's been 30 years, right? So it's just that thing of, yeah, we've triggered this memory for you. And then it seems like everybody else follows along, you know? Yeah. And I think that that has been, you know, the first thing you texted me back when I was like, let's talk about this was, yeah, let me, I'm paraphrasing you. Let me get over the 30 year thing of it. And I think that it's surprising because yes, it's always shocking when we're confronted with the fact that we're getting older, but also because truth or dare 
feels and looks timeless. Yeah. I mean, it, it does. It feels and looks timeless, I think, because it's so theatrical, because it's black and white, um, and because it was made so squarely for us, right? Like bold down the middle at us, which in retrospect, I, I don't even know when I watched it for the first time because uh, at the time of release, I would have been, uh, I think, 10 years old at this point, you know? So it's it's not even that I would have seen it, uh, you know, the first time it was released or whatever, but it feels like it is a documentary in the way that Reality Bites felt like a documentary, even if you were nowhere near their age or station or whatnot. Yes? Yeah. Totally. I think, yes, you're right. It was made for us or for a certain generation, but also there's a timelessness to it in the sense of, um, as the Vulture piece uh, indicates, it was the OG in terms of like pop star documentaries and arguably better done than the ones that we have in the current era. You know, even its artifice was understanding like in the moment, there was a consciousness of blurring that reality and artifice that is still relevant today and that no one else has been able to quite capture. So it didn't age in the sense of it being ahead of its time. No, it didn't. And I mean, I think what you're saying, and and I'm sure you'll tell me if, you, if uh, I'm putting words in your mouth, but part of the reason it didn't age is because it's not really about Madonna, right? It's about a moment in time and about these characters and about these people who honestly haven't become real media figures of their own in the intervening years afterwards. So they seem frozen in amber, right? It's fine that mm -hmm. they are acting this way and having these jokes and all the rest of it because we're not looking at it and going, oh, how different from how they are now. Oh, how unusual yeah. that they would have done that then because they don't do other things afterwards, right? Yep. And maybe that's where we should start because initially, as we learn, Alec Kishishian and Madonna did not intend for Truth or Dare to become what it became. It was supposed to be a standard HBO concert film. Yeah. Um, well, I was about to say, when you were saying that, I was thinking like, yeah, standard a tour film, but I don't even know if there was such a thing as a tour film at that time, right? Like a concert film, meaning uh, we take the performance, this performance from, you know, whatever, Stalingrad, and this one from Paris, and this one from Toronto, and we like n knit them together. Yeah. And then, you know, he goes there with his camera and he starts filming and he's like, well, fuck the original idea. This is the really interesting story. This is what I want to do. And he tells it to Madonna and she's like, yep, I totally agree. Which, you know, for from a storytelling perspective, when you have that opportunity to pivot, to recognize what the pivot should be, and then to follow through with it. At the time, Alec Ashishian was a very young filmmaker. Like this was not someone who had the pedigree, had the resume of whatever, fucking Martin Scorsese, right? This is someone who was quite new. Um, and part of the reason why like was chosen was because that this was a fresh pair of eyes working with this burgeoning icon. 
Um, and so for, for me, my takeaway too, like that reminder of, like this sounds so cliche, but really letting the story take you where it needs to go. Well, there was a quote a few weeks ago, and I am almost definitely going to malign whomever it was from. I want to say it was Ryan Coogler, but I don't think so. But uh, a few weeks ago, somebody saying the biggest mistake that new directors make is uh, going like trying to make the movie you thought you were going in with that not realizing that things change and mutate and that a film is a living thing and that you don't then try to make the movie that is in fact happening in front of you. Um, so it's a really like instinctive thing that you're talking about Kisheshi and dealing with um, without having sort of that, you know, that sort of moray in Instagram font on the wall, right? Of like, don't make, you know, make the movie that happens while you're there kind of thing. But that's an instinctive thing, right? To just kind of go, okay, this is what's happening. This is what we're doing. I also think it's so important to say up front that that's yet another way in which Madonna is so incredibly unusual at this time because there are all kinds of things we learn about her in this movie. There are all kinds of sides mm -hmm. of herself that she lets us see. But what makes it unusual really as a film, what people remember is that there's this whole ensemble, right? That mm -hmm. there's these 30 slash 200 people, if you count all the crew and everybody else who are going on this tour. And she lets the story be about them because she yeah. doesn't need more, you know, like it's still going to be about Madonna and she was easily the most famous person in the world at that point. Um, but that for all the kind of accusations of her being egotistical or, you know, the famous Warren Beatty line that we all think of when we think of this movie, mm -hmm. um, that in fact, she is quite open to it being not about her, which I find impressive or at least unusual. Well, you're totally right in that, you know, when it was pitched to her, hey, this story is more about this, like, on-the-road family that you have going on. And, you know, they they position her in this piece, The Oil History, as the mother, the, the matriarch of this tour family. But it is not, like, a story about one woman. It's a story about a family, as you're saying. But when we're dealing with pop star egos, and her ego is massive. Yeah, nobody's doubting now, that. Yeah. Right? Right. It's about, you know, how many pop stars in that time would have been, would have seen, would have been able to see, how about this? The way I, the way I interpret it is that the ego still can be served. It can still be about you and you can still be the biggest fucking deal, even if you share the screen with others. Like it enhances you more. Absolutely. And I think Later on, we see this to incredible effect, right? When we uh, watch the uh, the making of uh, Beyonce's Homecoming, right? Like the the mm -hmm. doc about the Coachella performance. Um, yeah, she similarly lets a lot of other people have the stage a lot of the time, and what is implicit there is it has had such an effect on these people because of me, because I am so amazing, amazing and iconic 
that I don't need to be yeah. in every frame. Does that make sense? Right. Like my impact is that yeah, huge. Yes. It's a different nutrition. Like she's, her ego is getting a different nutritional, like d- different kind of nutrition, but it's still like nutrition for the ego all the same. But in sharing that stage, it was just so at the time, almost radical. Yeah. My, one of the things I remember most is a moment in the film, uh, whenever I saw it first, where Madonna says, oh, all right, I got to go to bed. And she goes to bed. Uh, and you love to joke that I have FOMO, that I have fear of missing out. Um, but that she is aware that whatever's going to happen in that room after she goes to bed is almost not about her. Like she doesn't need to be a part of whatever it is and leaves. And the camera keeps rolling. It doesn't follow her out the door. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure a camera did follow her out the door until she told it to <laughs> fuck off. But that the story keeps rolling in front of us, you know? And in fact, there are many scenes in the film where Madonna doesn't show up, like not just Oliver's parts, right? But, you know, when she isn't on camera, mm-hmm. she isn't in the frame, she, like, they are literally shooting side stage, not main stage. Right. And that is, yeah, at the time, of course, and given who we're talking about, it just doesn't happen very often. And we still see the effects of this today, right? Like, you know, we hear anecdotes and stories about actors or performers who who are comparing airtime. How much airtime am I getting? How many lines am I getting? It's from that same place, right? Do I see you nodding? And so we're talking about the biggest, like, pop star, superstar, supernova in the world, as you said, at that time, who was like, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm going to feed my ego in a different way. It's very interesting, but... Um, it's definitely something to note um, that served the story and is why this pe- this film this film is still so iconic after all these years. Yeah, absolutely. And I would argue, and I'm not a documentary film scholar, uh, but I would argue probably gave birth to a whole brand of, you know, look elsewhere, look aside from this story to sort of the quirkier stories. This is a weird... Um, comparison, but I think it probably gave rise in many ways to more documentaries about subcultures. I'm thinking about a movie that I watched last year that I really enjoyed called Boys Town. Did you see this? Yes. Uh, Boys Town, if you haven't seen it, is basically a mock government field trip. Uh, And it's been held for decades and it's at university. And most of the characters are quirky at best. They would be described as quirky or offbeat or out of the mainstream. And I don't think it's too far to go to say that uh, the featuring of Madonna's dancers and makeup artists and backup singers not only gave rise to, say, 20 Feet from Stardom and, you know, nodded to Homecoming, but also look at the quirky people we can tell stories about, Spellbound and Boys Mm -hmm. Town and so forth not just the the big iconic headliners that are in the middle of the poster. Well, and then an added layer on top of that is that she was, you know, listen, for sure Madonna has had a controversial past and has made certain de- has made certain decisions that have um stolen from certain communities or not given proper credit. For sure we can oh, have no that question. is definitely a valid. Yeah, absolutely. That yes. At the same time, 
We can also say, I believe that in this film, she gave a lot of space to introducing for many people gay culture and humanizing gay men to a, a quite a wide audience. As, as indicated in the Vulture piece, this was the highest grossing documentary of all time for a long time, I think until Michael Moore's film in 2004. So oh, for almost 15 years, this film was seen by many, many people and seen in places where they wouldn't have had content, if you will, um, ab about the lives of people who um, were presented in this film. And that too, as if when you're talking about quirky, here are the quirky people here for Madonna was the, here are the gay people, here are their lives, here, here are their hurts, here are their fears, here are their joys. Absolutely. And both things can be true and are true. You know, you can be appropriative and be doing things that are uh, elevating people's humanity at the same time. People are complex individuals. Uh, and yeah, I don't think that was calculated. I think Madonna always believed, shock of shocks, but I think Madonna always believed that gay people were people uh, and that her uh, including them in her tours and productions and in her life was because gay people are people and not from a mercenary point of view, as much as she has made some clearly calculated and mercenary decisions uh, in other mm -hmm. areas. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think that was a, yeah. a calculated move. No. Because uh, nobody was ready for that at that time anyway. Um, so yes, agree. Yeah. There are many, many ways that they that they just stomped over what was kind of accepted at the time. And this is also one of those things that is harder and harder to remember. Um, sometimes when you are young, you're just, you don't know what you don't know. And so you kind of get out of your own way in, um, in a way that's harder to do later on when you know all of the like possible critiques or we better include this or we better include that. Um, there's something about being relatively fresh to something that makes you just kind of instinctively make choices that you don't know you're not supposed to um, that, that often turn out better than the old standard. Yeah, I agree. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So what else? Well, I mean, I guess along those same lines, what's so funny is the Warren Beatty part, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, look, let me tell me the truth. Did you care about Warren Beatty separately from Madonna? You have always been more old Hollywood and traditional A-list than me. Did you care about Warren Beatty? Not that old Hollywood. No, I, I didn't care about Warren Beatty. Um, the only, like, at the time, how about this? At the time that it came out, I only cared and knew of Warren Beatty as Madonna's boyfriend. I was a teenager. My whole life was Madonna. I I hadn't had my 
whatever criterion collection education. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I buy that. <laughs> that came right. That came later in my teens and early twenties when you know you start getting these different kinds of recommendations and expanding your worldview. But at the time. No, it was this old guy famous in Hollywood who Madonna was dating, period, the end. Well, I asked because um, this was just after Dick Tracy, which, um, you know, Dick Tracy, he played Dick Tracy, he directed. um, Again, I did not care about Dick Tracy per se, but it was marketed hard. And certainly the marketing was hitting me as a a tween uh, where I lived. So, like, I was aware that we were supposed to care. What I'm getting at here is that there's a line in the Vulture piece uh, where, uh, you know, Madonna's brother, uh, Christopher Ciccone, says, uh, my sister, being my sister, was acutely aware that being Warren's girlfriend was wonderful for her mythology and status in Hollywood. And I believe that she believed that. What nobody anticipated is that he looked like a crusty old man in this movie, right? Like, I yes. am absolutely certain that everybody involved was like, oh, good, we have a Warren Beatty scene. This is going to give this legitimacy. This is going to give this um, kind of context. But he winds up looking like a like an old man, like just like a fuddy-duddy in the most kind of PG damning way possible, you know? And so that was kind of a timing shift as well, I would argue. I don't know how old Warren Beatty is uh, per se. I'm sure I could find out while we're talking. But okay, he's, all right, he's 84. He's old. Um, But I mean, we are (laughs) a generation of people who have appreciated, you know, um, I don't know, uh, Harrison Ford. And uh, Mm -hmm. Al Pacino, maybe? Like, there are people who are his contemporaries who we, uh, in our own you know, generation have been able to see as men, but Warren Beatty shows up, looks like a lecturing dad who's about to ground her and essentially cuts himself out of ever being appealing to another generation. So in short, Warren Beatty played himself is what I'm trying to say here. (laughs) I, and, but I do think that like that one line is the most memorable. Easily, yeah. We, at the same time, I agree with everything you're saying. And yet at the same time, his observation of her, which is quite succinct. Mm-hmm. Um, as in as far as we saw. Stands, yeah. yeah. Stands the test of time. And it's it, it stands the test of time because, I mean, it was an accurate observation mm-hmm. of Madonna. What is the point of existing, right? Off yeah. camera. Number one, there are two parts to this. It's, again, an astute observation. But she wasn't insulted by it. She didn't give a fuck. She was like, yeah, what is the point of existing? Whereas if other people of her status at that moment were accused of, you only want to do things that are on camera. You're essentially like only doing things for attention. You're a provocateur. You're an exhibitionist, right? That's the word that was used in the Vulture piece, an exhibitionist before exhibitionists. And most people, I think, would be like, no, I'm a real person, okay? Like, I do have moments. Madonna was like, uh, yeah, flouncing off. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. Right? 
That's what makes that moment amazing. It's what he said and how she reacted. Yeah? You think you can hurt me with that? Is that supposed to be an insult? It's nothing she hasn't heard before, first of all. And second of all, his Mm -hmm. iconic status, whatever that was, which she already instinctively knew did not matter to her audience because her audience was, I mean, it was us, but it was probably more accurately um, the, the age of the dancers of Oliver and all the others, right? Of, you know, her audience was 18 to 25 year olds at that time, chiefly and primarily. They don't give a shit what Warren Beatty has to say. (laughs) Um, He's who? Uh, Later on in the piece, they talk about Kevin Costner and how he reacted to the way she uh, reacted to him in the movie, right? Um, Right. And as much as it's astounding now, Kevin Costner was a bigger deal and more recognizable to like a pop culture audience in 1991 than Warren Beatty was by a long shot. Also, she was just in a league of their own. So shut up, Warren Beatty. (laughs) But, you know, also what killed me is I think, and, you know, a true Madonna scholar, only probably a deep, deep, deep Madonna scholar would know this because I learned something from this, which is that it was Warren who suggested that Madonna perform on top of the piano. Oh, yeah. No, I don't know that I did know that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to check with Ian, our friend, who is the actual, like, you know, professor of Madonna. You could spend the entire podcast just, like, stating his credentials. Yes. yes. Hi, Ian. Um, But, you know, that that detail comes up quite early in the piece when they're talking about when they were, like, you know, designing it and choreographing it. And Madonna had asked Warren to come to a rehearsal and to give his feedback. Like, she clearly, obviously... Um, respected his opinion, especially given that that song was in Dick Tracy, I believe, right? Which song? Remind me. The Fever? Yes, yeah. I, be- I believe so, yeah. Right. So, you know, she invited him. He, she was like, you know, take a look at this number for my tour. And then he was like, you should put her on the piano. And they were like, uh, yeah, that's true. And that's how she did it. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that we're learning this 30 years later, at least on a like a much more mainstream level, that you know, she did not feel the need, even though this like Hollywood legend, Oscar winning writer, producer, director gave her this tip that did really work out for her show. She <laughs> it wasn't like she was bending over backwards to credit him back then. It just appears that was as one line in an article in an oral history. Now, well, <laughs> that too made me laugh. Yeah. And and just to, to go back here, um, it's not actually the case. Fever is not on the official soundtrack. Uh, you know, it's, but he was the director of Dick Tracy. Um, it, it, maybe she included it as a single on I'm Breathless, but in any event, those two things are so linked. I feel like they're so They're very much so, very much so. Yeah. Um, um, but, but that's, what's so interesting is she was more interested in dating him as a means to a creative collaboration than as mm -hmm. a, a sexual anything. Because she doesn't need fucking Warren Beatty to explore sexual anything with her. She has that well covered. It actually, had it gone a different way, it's very evocative of Fosse Verdon, uh, which I feel kind of got lost in the the shuffle in the last year or two. But Fosse Verdon is the story of Gwen Verdon and Bob Fosse and their marriage and the creative marriage within it 
Um, it was Michelle Williams. It was spectacular. Go back and find it. But that's sort of what that nods to, right? Is that your mm-hmm. the fact that you know me so intimately doesn't actually mean that I'm in love with you or that it means something significant about our sex lives. It means that I trust your opinion on my work, which, as we know, is an incredibly protected area for her or certainly Mm -hmm. was back then. Right. Yeah. And yet that there were limits like or I trust your opinion on your work in this scene, but you don't get to dictate my work to me. As we find out later when like Alec says that his lawyers were putting up a fuss about how much footage of Warren they could use and that he wanted to see a cut. And she was like, fuck that. He doesn't get to see a cut. The movie is the movie. I don't give a fuck. Now, that to me is like fist pumpy in in that respect, because again, like she's not a filmmaker at that time, right? The way that industry wide Warren Beatty is recognized as a Yeah, of course. Uh, Yeah. Right. And she's like, he's not getting to see a final cut of my film. Fuck you. You know, you get to fuck me, but you do not get to see the final cut of my movie. I fucking love that. Yeah. You're not my dad. Right. Is what that comes down to, which. Well, I mean, even her dad didn't get a say in how he was presented. But that kind of is the overarching theme. I would argue that's the overarching theme of certainly Madonna's first 10 years, it is 100% what hooked me in, um, is you're not my dad and I don't have to listen to what you say. Yeah. Um, And so that actually brings up for me, it's interesting that you said uh, the Warren Beatty line is the most memorable part of the film because I agree with you and yet I feel it should be something not for me, but I think, I think generally, generally I think that's the takeaway in the culture. That's what people I think. I agree. I agree with you. And I would say that arguably there should be something else that is the most memorable part um, or at least the most memorable hook. And if not for everyone, then at least for you and I. Um, and that is that the the whole pitch of the movie before you saw it was that it was going to be about the fact that she was going to be arrested in Toronto for Mm -hmm. lewd performance in, is it Like a Virgin? It is, right? Uh, Yes. yes. It's the staging of Like a Virgin, and she's going to simulate masturbation and, like, I guess, self-intercourse, not that we knew that term at the time. Right. Um, But that was really, like, there's a big narrative construct in the movie built around this uh and Mm -hmm. as torontonians uh that was a big shame on well it was a big shame on us as children (laughs) yeah yes our pearl clutchy city had to be the one immortalized in her film for being fucking tight uptight fucking losers well i i mean i i did go back and like you're telling me that like Cleveland had no problem that like, I don't know, Portland, Maine. She did not play Portland, Maine, but you get the idea. The police were, yeah, I don't think any other city police were threatening. Like there was an incident with the Vatican, but like, I mean, that's the Vatican. But, you know, in North America, in all these major international cities, it was Toronto's police that were like, we're going to come and arrest you. Amazing. What? (laughs) If I touch my own butt, like what? And uh, full disclosure, this was also uh, the city that had banned uh, a a young 
cool band at the time, don't get mad at us, um, a young cool band called the Bare Naked Ladies was banned from mm-hmm. playing in uh, Toronto's, uh, uh, like at the city town square because the the idea was that it was too lewd, the name, if you even can believe that. Yeah. So anyhow, here we are. Now, when we go viral and that was like that era's, um, that was that era's definition of viral. It's, it's hilariously not a good look for us. Like it's Madonna and the police threatening to arrest her. It's Rob Ford. (laughs) We went viral for Rob Ford. You mean when Toronto goes viral? Yeah. Like it's, it's only for bumpkinism. (laughs) And we are generally speaking, not bumpkins, but good Lord. Oh, and our COVID situation was a fucking shit show. Not also not a. What do you mean was? But anyhow, yes. Oh, yes, correct. Yeah, our yeah biggest city in Canada is um yeah, not doing good. <laughs> but that's one of the reasons that uh you know it it sticks in my memory because it it seems so like that is the only thing that is so of its time, right? Especially mm-hmm. like she says in the film, like, oh, I kind of half-assed it uh, because, you know, the threat of being arrested is comical at first and they get somewhat real and again is threatening mostly in a like a monetary way. Like, how is this going to screw yeah. things up if I have to go be bailed out and have to, you know, interrupt wherever the next stop is on the tour? Um, but that's the most antiquated thing for what I think now would be seen as pretty damn incidental at at best. Yeah. No, nobody stops for that. It's a non-event. Yeah. Non-event is exactly right. So like we've gone from that to the WAP video. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, but I, I will say you're right because it's, it's really hard to go through life, right, and be have accumulated experience and have your perspective change and remember, like, the crisis point of 1990 when that happened. But, and for you kids out there who are too young to remember, that was a big deal and it would have been for the artist. Like, as provocative as Madonna was, and there was, as they say in the movie, there is a part of her that is like, remember someone says she's just going to do it more. Yeah, that's her right? her manager. Right. Who, yeah. That's her thing. But even the, even the impulse to do it more comes from a place of fear, um, uncertainty, nervousness. Like, even Madonna in that moment, as you said, there was a lot of pressure, right? The financial pressure of what will happen if you are arrested and the show has to stop. The safety of it um, and the commitment of it and how you bounce back. What is your label going to say? Um, if there is a huge backlash and people support the Toronto police, does the touring company support you? Like, look at all in these times when people pull out of things, right? We just heard the Golden Globes, NBC has pulled out of hosting or of airing the Golden Globes. So think of that, like in her mind, all of that runs through her mind as well. Um, So it was not a small thing for her as an artist to be like, I'm just going to do it anyway. Yeah. And bring No, it's playing with gas for sure, right? Cooking with gas, playing with fire, some, uh, some simile in there. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. It is 
it is not now what it was then. Nobody knew about like, you know, pay a fine and move on or whatever. It was, it was definitely a bigger calculation that you're calculating on top of everything else that's going on. Yes. And again, and you know, we know, we know this person has always been a control freak. At that time in her career, she was at the height of her controlness, right? She oversaw everything. Everything was to her liking. She had a hand in all of it. Um, and I think it's fascinating that to, to, to watch her, that we have this evidence, like this document at that point in time where she was confronting like a major cultural risk. Yeah. And used to be really good at doing that. And then, um, lost, kind of lost the plot about what, Uh what that was about, which I don't think, I don't think we're really interested in talking about Madonna now. Um, you know, it's, it's what, who she was then and what that meant. I don't want to talk about Madonna now in relation to her other decisions, but I will say that, um, you know, what we can relate and connect to the Madonna now and then is that, first of all, she doesn't speak in this uh, um, oral history. And listen, she's Madonna. Like, I, I, I feel like it's fine that she doesn't speak. But the overwhelming sensation that you get from reading this piece is that I don't know that she reveres it the way that a lot of other people do. Like there is the sense here. Don't you get the sense that she has distanced herself from it? Like she, she there are some regrets even. Well, I mean, uh, may, I don't know if there are regrets, but you know, uh, wouldn't you? I also read a quote recently from Vanessa Carlton who was asked, you know, what do you think about the fact that uh, a thousand miles is still like this iconic song? And she said, uh, I'm paraphrasing. It's like if a poem you wrote about a crush in seventh grade went super viral. Like it's great Mm. and it's successful, but people think it is all of me and it is something I am so far past. And if you say I'm so far past it, then people think, oh, you don't like it. You don't care about it. You don't stand behind it. And it's like, yeah, I do, but I'm also not there. You know, there's like, there are friendships with, uh, we talked about Warren Beatty. There's friendships with Sandra Bernhardt. They don't have that friendship anymore, right? The relationships with a lot of the people in the film have changed. Uh, you know, I remember the drama when her brother Christopher wrote a quote unquote tell all book, which was really mostly a tell all book of how often he got high with Kate Moss. Um, but, you know, I can see where part of the distancing for her would be. I just don't want to keep rehashing all those moments. It's like like you wouldn't if you, somebody was watching a video of your 13th birthday over and over. You know, after a while, you're like, en- enough. Yes and no. Like, I mean, I think that that is an interesting hypothesis. I don't know if I buy that that's actually why Madonna hasn't celebrated Truth or Dare. Like I just checked her Instagram. She's not like we were record. We are recording this episode on the actual 30th anniversary. May 10th is the day it came out. Um, there hasn't been a post commemorating it. Ian and I, again, our Madonna guru, professor of Madonna, Ian and I talk about this a lot. Madonna is, and there are upsides and downsides to this. Um, she seems to be averse to nostalgia. Mm-hmm. 
And not necessarily because of the reason you're saying, like, I don't want to be looked at like I'm still in the seventh grade, but because as we can see, as we have seen, Madonna is still obsessed with being pushing forward, like the revolutionary, right? I only want to do new things all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, only think of me as with my new hit. What hit, girl? But okay, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, and I think that there is, it, it's the same way. And so, you know, there are artists like look at Celine Dion and look at all, so many artists who go back and sort of um, put out a greatest hits or whatever. She is completely resistant to that. You know, for her, if you do that, it means you're over. Um, it's not true. Well, no. That, if I were to psychologize Madonna, that is 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 how I would, uh, and that's how I relate this truth or dare absence, her absence in this truth or dare memory. But I think those two things are kind of the same thing. I think that one of the things that happened around truth or dare is that we all went, oh my God, this is the real Madonna. This is the truest Madonna. I wonder if it was quite easy for her to shift gears before truth or dare uh to go you know to slide from image to image to image and after we had it in our homes and could watch it all the time there was more uh inclination for people to want madonna to stay the same uh in a way that tv stars often complained about back then right they were in people's Mm -hmm. homes in a very particular role whereas movie stars got to change and evolve and whatnot uh, Madonna, by virtue of VHS distribution, got kind of stuck in our collective minds. You know, years afterwards, you would see people still wearing uh, the costumes from that tour and from that moment in time, uh, and it became less easy to to depart from them. I wonder. Yeah, I, I you know, I think that why I'm bringing this up is because Alec uh, Kashishian shares. Um, in this oral history that for a while they were contemplating doing a sequel, coming back to it. And she pitched him an idea. She was like, how about my work, you know, doing this and that? And he was like, no. And that to me was also quite interesting. Like, imagine you turning down Madonna. Well, but, but that's smart. Like, wow, right? But that's that same gut instinct, clearly, because he knows yeah. that whatever you do has to, you can't make this movie if it doesn't top it. Mm-mm. It has to be better. And it wasn't going to top it, it like no that. There's no way it was going to. Exactly. Not with that idea. There's also the part in this article that, frankly, I didn't really know uh, about the dancer's Uh, wanting to be paid and, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of coming and saying, look, this is not, this is kind of not what we signed up for essentially, or again, not knowing they were going to be in people's homes on VHS for the rest of their natural born lives. I was actually reminded of the, like of the Hamilton cast going to the mat for uh, greater financial consideration in that uh, sort of similar situation, uh, remember when Leslie Odom Jr. kind of yeah. took the took yes. the lead? This is a very similar situation, arguably with a with a slightly different result, right? Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, and and arguably with a different, for sure, a much more different. I mean, that was twenty years later or more, right? Twenty. Um, 
what is it, 91 to 2016. So at least, yeah, it was, yeah, it was some. Hamilton was 2016, right? Yeah, but that argument kind of was ongoing. But yeah, let's call it 25 years. Yeah. So, and, but you're right. And then, and that is, that may be part of her reticence of talking about truth or dare because of those lawsuits, 100%. Like, you know, but there, there does seem to be a Madonna detachment from this thing that so many of us have such a strong attachment to from this era. Um, you know, even on our group chat, like, you know, I, I think I was the one who shared it with our group chat and, um, our other friend was like dropping everything right now. Um, I think you said the same thing. I think you were having like a tough work day and you were like, oh, I needed this. And then our, but I think by the time you weren't even finished reading it yet, and our other friend had already hit play on the film. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. And um, actually, I'm so glad that you you referenced that uh, that chat because I went back to it and I found um, something that was really incredible uh, that I loved in the piece that I didn't know about. Um, and this is a quote that somebody said, you know, why it was so great was because, uh, you know, she was free. She didn't really have kids yet. Uh, I'm scrolling back to find the first name of the person. Cause you know, in oral histories, they do that thing where they just refer to them by last name after the first time, you know what I'm getting at? Um, but basically, um, from Carlton Winborn, who was one of the dancers, Uh, There's a quote where, uh, you know, he says it was so great because it it asked, is she really that free? And that was, Mm. to me, the most amazing thing about kind of the concept of Madonna in general and the film as well. Right. Like you see her do all this stuff, the blowjob scene and the telling Warren Beatty where like to fuck off or whatever, um, or screaming about who was in the front three rows or everything else is she really that free was that was super liberating to watch. That was the moment that was so exciting. Nobody look, I don't care who Madonna is now. I'm sure she has every, every financial advantage and probably every creative advantage, but she's still like in her sixties and the mother of many children who tell her all the time how she's not cool because that is the job of children who are, you know, whatever they are, like 14 to 22 now, right? Like, that's their job. Like, she, in a way, the movie captured her at her freest. And why would you want to see her other than that? Because that is so, that's such an, it's such an intoxicating thing. That's what I think of when I see it. That's the quote that meant the most to me. And... Probably that's the best place for us to end this podcast. I mean, we're going to do Seth Rogen. He's got a book coming out. He's promoting his cannabis company, Houseplant. Thank you, Houseplant, for sending me my introductory box. I can't wait to dig into it. Um, But it's probably best that we read Seth Rogen's book and we just give Truth or Dare its solo moment because, I mean, it's Madonna. Why should she share? Even though she shared her stage in Truth or Dare with so many other like people from that Truth or Dare crew. But it feels right to just end it here. Yeah, I feel good about it. And uh, we'll give Seth uh, the context that he deserves, even though that would have been a hilarious mashup. Uh, But yeah, I think it takes time to figure out like who 
she was and how that's different for us than who she is now. Um, I, it feels good. It's a little uh, podcast therapy, you know? But if you want to do the homework and do the advanced reading, we will be getting into Seth Rogen, uh, reading his book, talking about all the things that he's been discussing in the promotion of this book, including who he won't work with anymore, uh, what, how his comedy has changed, um, reflecting on these times and what impact they've had on his work. So yeah, if you want advance, do the reading. Um, and until next time, please keep uh, sending us your comments, your thoughts, your disagreements. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to show your work. If you want to, you know. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.